0: Hey, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum and Aiyub mubarak, everybody. Um, we knew that um, the, that you know because this is a holiday, we might not have too many people joining us. But here at Asuli, the work continues. <laughs> we had a discussion about whether we should take a break, and you know it's like um, you know we've been doing this for for 20, 30 years, and you know I've joked a lot about how vacation is really not in our vocabulary. Um, but you know it's it's a uh, it's blessed work and so it's it's hard to imagine something else more important that you'd like to be doing um, even though you know we often give up sleep and we often give up you know free time and you know but I mean hamdulillah I think um, everything that we're doing is, is, is so exciting and fulfilling for us that you know I mean when I was asked my opinion I was like oh we should continue continue doing it um, let me start by by just reminding people of my friend this is my, my friend that I introduced everyone to last last Halakha. Um, this is the Atlantic article on the Uyghur Muslims and this is actually, um, you can find this online and he, he shares a lengthy story about um, what it was like when he was losing friends day by day and things were changing in China um, and how he and his family were able to get out and how they really um, feel that they will never um, overcome the guilt of surviving. Um, and this as I had said before was a very painful story um, that you know I was carrying this around with me, and I actually ended up finishing reading it that night um, And it was extremely painful for sure um, But I think also it it made you feel um, he's a he's a poet and he shares his story um, And you feel like you're just hearing a friend tell you a story and you could very much imagine that this could happen to yeah you know, you, if you happen to be living in a, in a country where, where things are repressive and you really have no control. Um, and, you know, interestingly, um, he's two years younger than I am, which is striking because I think if you look at this picture, you know, it just shows that, that there's been obviously a lot of life experienced and a lot of pain experienced. Um, but anyway, this is again in, in my sort of quest for, you know, asking and questioning myself whether I'm doing enough to change. Um, what is happening now with the Holocaust, you know, in our in our midst? Um, and I did send the link um, to one of my close Jewish friends, um, and you know, had a conversation with her because she actually had sent me a link before the last time they had um, Passover Seder that they decided um, as a community that they were going to make the Uyghur Muslims the focus of their prayers, um, which I thought was amazing because that would seem to be a little bit even more than Muslims were doing, but. Um, Inshallah, you know, may we continue, um, you know, to to do everything that we can um, with the situation in our midst. Um, I wanted to just take a moment also too. I was sort of struck with um, Sharif shared a comment with me earlier um, about you know getting questioned about what it's like to be the son of a scholar, and this sort of dovetailed with you know last night I was trying to um, do another Mido and Baba session because um, it's been some time. Because um, we, since coming to Ohio, we've been just so incredibly busy um, that it's been really hard to keep up with just normal activities in life. Um, and, you know, it was, it, it, we didn't actually have a, a, an official Baba Mito session where it was recorded, which was very unlike me because, you know, I record everything. But it turned out to be a very important conversation because, um, you know, it was one of these Mito Baba sessions where, where, Actually, I think Mito got to learn a lot about what it's truly like to live the life of a scholar, because sometimes, you know, when your kids are in your house, you don't really exactly know what's going on. You see your parents running back and forth, they're busy, they don't have time for, you know, normal types of things. Um, And it was a really amazing um, opportunity, I think, to even just hear from, you know, me hearing as an outsider, like, the, the stories of... You know, and I had heard some of these stories before of what it was like um, for Sheikh to grow up and have the mindset that he has, which l- led us all to where we are today. And so I thought I would just share a little bit of that story because it's it's fascinating um, because not everyone obviously can be a scholar and certainly not everyone can reach this point where we are and be able to give to all of us the, the incredible knowledge that we are experiencing. And um, you know, and I hope you don't mind, I'm just sort of sharing some of these, you know, interesting tidbits, but like, you know, the Sheikh from the time he was young was uh, very ill and unable to do very much as far as other kids were concerned. So he was, you know, the kids that, you know, in school that, um, you know, are not able to do sports. They're the last ones picked on sports teams, you know, the ones that kids always sort of isolate as being different. Um, he didn't have a lot of friends um, and was, you um, spent a lot of his time just reading to entertain himself and to learn about the world and he said that he very quickly realized that there was just so much knowledge in the world and was um, determined to learn literally everything from gravity to you know the the way you know um, the sun and the moons you know I I mean just everything about life and so when he started to read um, as he learned more he very quickly realized that there was just way too much for him to learn and that he probably could not leave this planet without knowing more than maybe 1% of all knowledge that is out there. So he learned that he should learn what is actually meaningful. And he became very um, interested in God um, because he very quickly realized that the life that we live here is not by coincidence, it's not by random chance, that you know the things that we experience are so miraculous that obviously there had to be a creator and so he became very interested in studying to know more about God. Um, and so part of his schooling and growing up was spent in secular schools from basically 8.30 in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon. And then he would come home and rest and then go to Islamic schools um, at night from you know the afternoon until probably eight o'clock at night and come home and eat dinner and do homework until one. And then wake up and go to pleasure, come back and rest for a little bit, and go to school, and his day would begin again. And that was basically his entire childhood, and you know, and teenagehood. I mean, he really didn't have friends. He didn't spend time socializing. He didn't spend time doing the things that typical, you know, kids do. And certainly, you know, Mito hearing this story, Mito who spends, you know, most of his time, you know, interacting with his friends online, playing video games, watching YouTube, and these kinds of things. Um, Is a very different kind of perspective. Um, and, you know, so it was a really beautiful, like, conversation because it was such a different world that he grew up in and, you know, obviously that he appreciated knowledge and, and also noticed that when he was in high school, you know, all the kids that were into, you know, whether it was boyfriends and girlfriends or looking cool or, you know, having the latest, you know, luxury or whatever, um, that very soon those optics really meant very little and that he was determined to sort of prove to these kids who didn't treat him nicely and who didn't want to pick him for their, their you know, sports teams or whatever, that he was going to be extremely successful and, you know, and achieve and that he wanted to prove to the world. So that, was, that became its own motivation and its own habit until it became part of him that no matter what he did, he wanted to do a good job and, you know, and succeed. And it's a really inspiring story because, you know, it's like now, obviously, you know, 30, 40 years later, you go back and you can go to Facebook and you can see the friends you went to school with and, you know, the cheerleaders and, you know, the people that were beautiful and see like how their lives have turned out. And many of them have not done anything at all impressive. Um, and so, you know, just um, there's so many stories to tell. And and I think, you know, the interesting thing about like what Sharif had said was someone had asked him what it was like to be the son of a scholar. Um, and, you know, he said that's a really difficult question to answer, but what struck me um, about what he, what he said is that growing up he felt that he, you know, was learning um, an Islam that most people didn't know. Um, and it wasn't until he got a lot older that he realized no one else knew this Islam. And that was also very similar to the way I would have answered the question, because people have asked me what's it like to be the wife of a scholar, and especially as a convert. Is that I feel like the Islam that I was exposed to was extremely different than the the Islam that the vast majority of people know. Um, And I think what's beautiful now is that people, this is exactly what we're learning in in Project Illumin. Um, And and the other thing that was very beautiful that um, the Sheikh shared with Mito is that part of the sacrifice, I mean, there were definitely a lot of sacrifices in us coming here to focus on this project. And, you know, I think the Sheikh has said, you know, for for a law professor to leave academia or to take even step aside for a little bit of time from academia to focus on something you know religious like the Quran, I mean, you know, everyone's going to look at you like you're absolutely insane. Like, why would you even do that? You know, you're walking away from a very prestigious you know situation. Even Muslim academics would look at you in the same way. Um, but, you know, he said that it, it took some time for him to, you know, he for a long time felt like, well, all of this stuff with the Quran that, you know, other people obviously must know this. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only one that is, is understanding the things in this way. And it took a long time for him to come to the realization that, well, okay, if other people are understanding this the way that I'm understanding it, well, where are they? Why aren't they teaching it this way? Why aren't they talking about it this way? And it became you know, clear over time that no one else does understand it this way. And that this is something, I think when you tested it with a lot of you know, us um, you know, and, and me, um, the reaction was like, oh my God, no, this is something that is so special that needs to be shared. And it became a religious duty. Um, and it's a hard thing to explain to people who are very tied to the material world, who don't believe that the Quran has anything to offer. But I think for some of us i think it's it's very valuable and and i you know i hope people it's hard to truly understand the sacrifices that a scholar goes through i mean it's it's an entire lifetime worth of of sacrifice you know whether it's putting every bit of savings you have into buying books or whether it's staying up late i mean you know we we were supposed to have a prayer today um, and you know the sheikh was in so much pain from all last night to this morning up until literally the minute before we were going to start, he was still trying to fight his pain and wanted to even try and rest for a little bit longer to see if he could actually get up and give the the Eid Khutbah. And he pushed as long as he could till the very last minute and and finally it was actually you know Sharif that said, no we have to know our limits and you, you shouldn't push yourself like this. And then we decided to cancel. Um, but that just so people understand the level of dedication, you know, people don't understand what it's like to live in pain 24-7. It's if you ever have experienced pain even for a moment, like I know when I have a headache, it's like the world is over at that moment. But if you imagine your life living in severe pain 24-7 and learning to live with that, when you reach the level of pain that, you know, that you want to cancel, someone like Sheikh who has a very high pain tolerance, that's a really serious amount of pain. And he pushed past it to prepare all day today to be here for this halakha. And so, uh, you know, just to let people understand the amount of sacrifice, the amount of dedication, the amount of, you know, fighting pain in order to be here. Um, And just, you know, I hope that people, even if you don't see it, you know, I try to witness this so that people understand what it takes, because it's such a lonely path and it's it's such a thankless path. Um, And people just, you know, think that, oh, they have a free video you know, on YouTube, we'll just turn it on at our convenience. Oh, we're just irritated because it's six hours long or four hours long. You know, if people understood the amount of time and energy and dedication and knowledge and everything that went into it from the time he was little, that, you know, it just, it, it's like, the gift we're getting is is priceless. There's just no words for it. So, you know, this is a naive gift for all of us that keeps on giving. And so thank you for everything. I hope you don't mind. He doesn't like to talk about himself, but for me, I have to witness and I, you know, just so people can appreciate what it takes to get this knowledge. So, um, alhamdulillah, and may Allah bless you, and may Allah, um, you know, help all of us um, appreciate, you know, everything that goes into it. And um, I'm, I'm really excited and looking forward to another incredible session. So, alhamdulillah.
1: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen علي محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وتابعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين. رب مشرح لي صدري واستر لي أمري وحمل عقبة من لساني يا يا أيه... Prepared to eat khubba um, I thought it was a good khutbah, but <laughs> uh, I'm not going to end up giving it. Um, no, alhamdulillah. So inshaAllah today, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, the, the surah that we that we are inshallah covering the surat russia um but depending on how things go we might end up covering more than russia we might I, I thought if if uh, if i managed to cover russia in a relatively short time then maybe i can do al Ala as well um which, in the the way that the Quran is organized, is of course the surah that comes right after Al-Raishiyah. Although they were revealed at two different times, but let's see how it goes. So Al-Raishiyah is from the mid Meccan period. Um, It was revealed after surah to Zariyat. Although stylistically, it it would look like a very early surah. Um, Stylistically, um, one would have thought it would be revealed Early on in the Meccan period, but it, but all the, the vast majority of, of sources say that it was revealed mid-Meccan. Most sources say it was revealed after the Azariah and right before Surah Al-Kaf. Um, now, of course, Surah Al-Kaf, which we have not covered. Uh, Surat Al-Kahf and Surat Al-Nahl and Surat Ibrahim um, Surat Al-Anbiya th- these surahs, in many ways complement one another and they, they are all part of a a um, a, a paradigm shift in um, but Surat Al-Ghashiyah is like a lot of the very early Meccan soars. although, as we said, it is from the mid-Metcan period. It underscores the very concept of accountability like a lot of the very early soar, They came anchored around, the oneness of God to address specifically and clearly the concept of accountability that without accountability, then in the entire creation, is pointless. And that, in fact, without accountability, the very idea of God itself, becomes very problematic. Um, This is a a philosophical slash theological issue, but um, because it was well known at the time that Islam came to, that uh, Prophet Muhammad came with his message, the idea that the idea that there is a God, but that this God does not necessarily have an, a system of accountability in in, in which people are uh, necessarily held to answer for their deeds. And what the philosophical slash theological issue is, is that that would contravene the very concept of God's justice because a God that would create and allow whatever unfolds on this earth to unfold without there being further consequences to anything um, is necessarily an unjust God. the idea of a just God becomes only possible with accountability, that there is something beyond this life. Of course, in Judaism, especially, there emerged the idea that, well, you you, you sort of, if you do good deeds, God, allows you to benefit from your good deeds on this earth, and if you do bad deeds, then God punishes you for these bad de- deeds on this earth. But that becomes very empirically difficult to justify because there are plenty of people who, um, that's not the way it works out for, for them on, uh, in this life, that good deeds or bad deeds are not answered in this, in, in this earth. And you know, among other many other issues. So the first stage of revelation often did precisely that that it it underscored that there's only one God and that the idea of some type of division of labor among Divinities uh, is a, 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 is an absurd proposition, and that accountability is core to the faith. And so, Surat al-Ghashiyah, on the one hand, seems to do precisely that. Plus, a further element that does is characteristic of the mid-Meccan period onwards. Oh, is Joe traveling?
2: Yeah.
1: Where is he now? Jordan?
2: I I think
1: he's on his way there, or he just got there. Uh, Plus, um, uh, an element that is rather characteristic from the mid-Meccan revelation onwards um, and that is to emphasize that the Prophet والسلام, is nothing but a reminder and that the Prophet doesn't control. That the, that the Prophet has no, doesn't control the fate of people and that is not part of his mission. And that is, that is something that is characteristic of, of the mid Meccan period onwards. With some issues that we'll see that come up in Surah Al-Ghashiyah. Okay. So on its at least on its um, in in most Quranic translations and most traditional tafsir Surah Al-Ghashiyah uh, sounds fairly straightforward. In that it starts out by saying. Um, attack hadith Russia which of course as a rhetorical device where you, you raise you you as a rhetorical device you you raise it in a form of a question um, to underscore the importance of an event and ha, have you heard of al Now we know that the uh, the hereafter or the final day is referred to in the Quran in in several ways as al ghashiyah as al-Haqqa, as al um All which in the traditional tafsir are taken to refer to basically the same set of events, and that is the end of life on this earth and the beginning of the next stage. And so have you heard about the coming of al Rashia or have you heard about the unfolding of al Rashia? And Russia um, l- quite literally means an event that overwhelms, an event that overcomes or overwhelms, or something that is of. Um, an overwhelming power and an overwhelming force that that reshapes things so have you heard of that event now why do we say well it refers to the the, the hereafter specifically because of what comes first, and I'm sorry, be, before, because of what comes after. So, on that day, the day where you see faces, means humbled, um, Humble, downtrodden, it, it could even mean stressed, burdened, and Amilatun Nasiba. Now, Amilatun Nasiba, which literally would be Nasaba is something that's wary or um, a- attentively anxious. mina means toilsome or toiling, hard at work. Tasla Naran Hamia, here it's where. Becomes the picture, becomes clearer that we're talking, in fact, about the hereafter. Tasla Naran Hamia entering a scorching fire. Tuska min Ayn Ania Al Ayn Ania is a bubbling or boiling, either water spring or water source. So scorching fire, boiling water, al-dariya, <laughs> it was a, a type of plant known um, at the time that the Quran was revealed Um, when this plant first grows when it's still green it's called the shabrak and it is eaten by animals when it dries up animals stop eating it it becomes thorny and and poisonous and then it becomes becomes called the darya the same plant. It goes from being a shabrak to a darya. So, let say, illa min So, it the, that indicates that whatever food is available, it is something poisonous, something at a minimum, extremely unpleasant to eat. La yusminu wa la min jua, that even as unpleasant as it is, it doesn't satisfy any hunger. This, what, what, in traditional tafsir, um, are is often seems like a very straightforward reference to a. a you know, a, a, a burning fire, a boiling water, and a unpleasant, horrible food that doesn't uh, satisfy and so on. In traditional tafsir, it, it's all of plain meaning and without much to do about it. So, and that's the opening salvo of... But as especially in many of the Sufi esque deficit. They looked at Hadith al-Ghashiyah, and as often when the, if, the, if the word can have a double meaning, if a word like al-Ghashiyah, which literally means an event that's overwhelming, then Sufi asked the Fasir tended to look at it and say, well, Why limit it to events that unfold only in the hereafter? If Allah wanted to say make a reference only exclusively to the hereafter then Allah would have said so. But the fact that Allah uses a word like al and the day of overwhelming events, then they take that as an invitation from Allah to reflect upon the hereafter and any parallel set of situations that can be described also under the rubric of al-ghashir. And methodologically, that makes sense because if the, when the Quran wants to use language that is non-negotiable, not expensive, it does so. Uh, while, while the meaning, when, when words are used that could have layers of meaning, in various methodologies of Tafsir that was that was considered to be intentional, intentional and purposeful. Okay. So what else could Malaysiasia refer to? when, and especially that it says, did the news or did the knowledge of al come to you? And they thought that, especially when the Quran uses this, um, grammatically this reference to in our modern lang- language what we would call to an epistemology that is used by human beings that is is employed by human beings that that is an indication of a more expansive meaning so it's like saying, did the discourse about al ghashiyah reach you? And from that, they thought, well, then the discourse about al ghashiyah it's like permission, or it's like an indication for an actual discourse about any event that can fall under the rubric of al ghashiyah most Sufi esque looked at Al Rashia as a, a reference to um to earthly life itself. So al-ghashiyah, this overwhelming thing, is not just the hereafter, yom al-qiyamah, but it's actually life on earth that could be so overwhelming was often read as if you if you handle the dunya in a certain way then that would apply to you that you would be as if it's an idiomatic expression like um as if uh, uh, dishonored faces. Faces that become dishonored by the way that they handle dunya, by the way they handle earthly life. So, what is the handling of dunya that can lead to amila nasiba What can that can lead to tasla naran Hamia? Well first That If you do not understand the nature of igashiya whether you under whether this ghashiyah is life is the, the, the anything that is ghashiyah, meaning anything that is overwhelming, whether it occurs into our temporal life or it occurs in the hereafter. If you fail to understand that something is only a because you lose sight of god's role in it it's like losing sight that you let's take the 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 example that right now seems very relevant to me you're in pain you're in excruciating pain if you lose sight of the fact that there is a God that wills that pain for you and that can take this pain away from you and that ultimately will reward you for what you do with this pain, how you handle this pain, then that pain becomes a it becomes overwhelming because it seems like it's just pain. No reason for it, no consequences to it, other than the agony that you feel, and you are powerless before it. You can't do much with it. And because of that, what would apply to you is, it's like saying, well, because of the way that you've handled this rashia, this overwhelming pain, now your face has become ujuchasha. Your face has become like dishonored, solemn faces. You, you are distressed. You are burdened and distressed and sad meaning here you toil meaning you work really hard with nervous energy but pointless energy but pointless actions what happens when we are confronted with overwhelming things we we become, you know, yes, it's possible that you just cower and you put your head in, in in a in a hole in the ground, right? It's possible. But what often happens is that you start getting nervous energy. You 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 are busy. You are moving back and forth, back and forth, like piecing back and forth, passing and forth. But. entirely pointlessly and entirely without point or purpose. All that energy avails you nothing. It takes you nowhere. And it is, in fact, the very handling or rather, mishandling of what overwhelms you is what makes it or what turns it into an unbearable fire. So the same events The same dunya, the same tests in dunya don't need to be an unceasing fire. But it is your mishandling of these events, i.e. your inability to understand the events for what they are. The example of the pain. So you're in agonizing pain. You do what a lot of people do and you start thinking that it's the end of the world, I can't work, I can't think, I can't talk, I, I you know, you start snapping at people, you, you can't stand anyone, and you start looking for a way to relieve the pain, even if it's taking drugs or whatever, because you just want the pain to stop. That mishandling of a thing is what turns it into... Is seizing fire, unceasing fire. Now they come to Tuskam in Ain in Ania and ليس لهم طعام من that what turns what you drink, or figuratively, what you drink into a, a source of agony and pain, and what you consume into further uh, further um, further sinking into agony and pain. Well, in the in the language that you often encounter, "Shubohat Dunya wa Haramatiha yezdaz al ilayha wa la wa ma yghni wa ma That the irony about dunya is that. As you, your nervous energy, the the the, on um, al as you you. You work nervously, to handle the overwhelming events. But the irony of it, is that the more you take from dunya, to try to deal with what overwhelms you, the more you. As they, as they say in Arabic poetry, that we need be here kind of to that. As the, the more you covet of dunya to try to address the pain that you are enduring, the worse your pain gets. So the natural tendency is that when people are overwhelmed in dunya, they think that, well, if I drink more, if I consume more, I'll be okay. If I get more from dunya, it will fix me. I'll be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll address al-ghashiyah. But indeed, it never happens that way. And the more that you covet and the more that you consume, the worse you become. There is within the Sufi-esque approaches, there's a variation on this theme and some like Al-Qashani um, and or Ibn Arabi, Allahu A'lam, whoever wrote that tafsir but Ibn Arabi says the same thing in Futuhat anyway so um, and that is He has a, a very interesting sort of dual approach to the whole. Yusqam min ainan Is um, that he doesn't? They don't, or, or that orientation doesn't just see it as the problem is as you consume more the problem, in other words, is not a problem of consumption. It's not just a problem of material things that are consumed that in fact make the Rashia worse and worse. But rather, it is the type of Uloom that you seek out, the type of knowledge that you seek out to address the predicament of the rashia. And the reason I say it's a duality is that in this perspective, in fact, one, the punishment in the hereafter, in Ibn Arabi type thought and those who follow this orientation, is that fire in the hereafter is not like fire on earth. And boiling water in the hereafter is not like boiling water on earth that in the hereafter when Allah says Ain Aniyah or Lay Salam Thomun Illam al Dariah La Yusminun La Yuhimin Jua it Allah is alerting you to the fact that I wanna see if I um, okay so f- first let me let me uh, uh, step back in a second so first in this approach when Allah says I to Burdened and toiling, right? So, what type of toiling is engaged in? And the answer is `Amalun Shaqqa min jinsi daraba biha fi That, as to the hereafter, what you, when Allah is talking to you, telling you, you will be toiling. He says, you will be toiling, but this time you are toiling, repeating or in, 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 in um, you are toiling in, um, actions or activity that is the related to what you've done, your evil deeds on earth. So, in other words, you will be toiling, but the toiling is not just any toiling. It is toiling that you are forced to do to address all the bad that you've done on earth. Now, so the next step, So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then say says Tasla Naran Hamiyah, in that orientation they understand Tasla Naran Hamiyah is that no fire is worse than the fire of ignorance and loss and the realization that you are to, to see the truth of who you are and what you've done, and that you are going to have to address. You are going to have to address what you've done. So, min So, they read this as Al 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 So, in the hereafter, when Allah refers to boiling water, it is the, the the painful being forced to drink the water of your own ignorance. So it is like confronting your darkness. So then we come to Dariya the the food right so here what you are what is referred to as lahum illa min la yusmin wa la min this is understood as what you are in fact because they, they, they don't believe in the hereafter that there is eating or drinking as we do on on this earth that this is becomes um but what you are forced to consume ish as the arabic words khawatir al li that what you are forced to consume is the truthful pain painful reality of the darkness of your intellect and heart. So if they understand, so that's, it has a meaning in the hereafter as the ignorance of, that you've lived in, confronting the stark truth of all the things that you got away with, um, got away with on earth because on earth you can delude yourself. You can say, I'm not really a horrible person. The people I hate deserve hate, being deserve to be hated. I'm not really a horrible person. The people I hurt deserve to be hurt. But in the hereafter, all of that is taken away and you see things for their stark truth. And the fact that you are away from Allah yeah. and away from the realm of the light and, and You don't realize it now, but in the hereafter, the ethereal being that you are is thoroughly in agony when it confronts these ethereal realities. And that becomes its true fire, because ignorance tears it apart in the same way that light and knowledge consolidates it together so you're not torn apart by necessarily fire that has a certain temperature but ignorance itself is a fire that that literally rips you apart in ibn arabi in in the tafsir attributed to ibn arabi that survived he says it as a as a presents it a matter of linguistic interpretation but in Futuhat Ibn Arabi says that he presents it as a matter of visions that he's had, and a lot of other Sufis followed in, or even before Ibn Arabi, because you saw find some this this, some of this imagery even before Ibn Arabi. Um, but okay, so what is the dual meaning that I'm referring to then? Is that on this earth, we said for the Sufi's orientation, al-ghashiyah on this earth is any overwhelming set of events in which you don't understand the divine properly. So what is it that you are drinking and what is it that you are eating? It is not your obsession with material consumption but it is your addiction to wrong thinking. So in that orientation is Al Ulum Al muntafa Biha is ways of thinking that are not constructive. And in fact, harmful. So, it is Allah alerting you by referring to al-ghashiyah First, that, listen, if you get a ghashiyah in your life that overwhelms you and you don't have the proper perspective a in terms of life on this earth you will be torn apart by your your harmful emotions and harmful ideas and in the hereafter, these um, harmful emotions and harmful ideas, when you see the truth of their darkness, they will become fire, as if fire tearing you apart, ripping you apart. In the more, the the. The other Sufi interpretation, they just they they basically say that when it refers to Ainun Ani and Taamun Darya, is that it's saying you, you'll try to solve your problems by consuming, and consuming will avail you nothing. Well, you know you you will escape from your pain by coveting more of this what this what material life has to offer. But what you covet, in fact, will be the source of your torment. Now, in contrast to that, are the wujuh and na'imah. The faces, this is wujuh and na'imah, is verse 8. The faces that are in repose and in comfort. في جنة لسعيها contended by its endeavors. في جنة عالية in a high garden or a high jannah la tasmau fiha laghiya fiha aynun jariya fiha srurun mrafuwa wa akwaabun mwduwa wa or msfufa wa you mabthuuta so a high garden where la tasmau fiha laghiya and just keep that in mind that it hears no idle talk. There are flowing springs, there are raised couches, goblets placed, and cushions arrayed, and, and carpets spread. So this is all very literal, traditional uh, translation. Okay, so in the traditional tafsir, this is very straightforward. In in the hereafter, the there will be material comforts, and the material comforts will be carpets, cushions, goblets. Me, you know, meaning you you, you drink uh, all types of. Tasty stuff and eat all types of tasty stuff. In the Suviasque tradition, عالية, they point that a is any blessed or ble- any. Uh, any blissful state the Jannah al any state of bliss is a Jannah any winning state is a Jannah they come to la tasma'u fiha la and. In traditional tafsir, they say basically that no one speaks ill of anyone else in the in heaven. That all people, their hearts are reconciled with one another. There's no hate. There's no enmity. There is no jealousy. There is no rancor, so on. There is a an interesting point, and that is. Well, if people in Jannah have no hate, have no rancor, have no jealousy, then are they still themselves? Because hate, rancor, jealousy are all a part of free will. If you take free will away are humans human anymore um, Precisely because of this the what at least the the tafasir that were written by more of a of a rationalist orientation uh, tended to pause at lama um and have extended discussion as to uh, and the 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 gist of it was la usma halagia. They insisted is not that you don't. It's not as traditional tafsirs say that you don't hear um, uh, uh, gossip or whatnot, but rather that there is no, there there are no deceptive no deceptions of power and authority that. Deceptive ideas are not circulated from sources that would have the power to circulate these deceptive ideas. In other words, you live in a world of honesty. The Sufi asked the Fasir, however, come to let us mafia and say that what Allah takes away is the ability of the self to deceive the self. That once you take shaitan out of the equation, and you take the demonic out of the equation, it's not that you're taking free will away, but whatever human beings feel that is not healthy it becomes very superficial and quickly addressed because the the communities of counsel if you will that exists are are angelic and so you are quickly confronted by whatever wrong you might be and the 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 types of things that churn people up and that make people g- increase in spite like a gel- like you know um, uh, the, the scarcity of, of things or like competition or like you know it doesn't exist plus shaitan is doesn't have a role in there but anyway Further with another point. So let us mafi. So فيها What is this ain't jariah in the Sufi S tradition? They say it is the Ain of Hikmah Wal Ma'rifa. So what this means is that the ayin here is this fountain. It's literally like saying the fountain of knowledge or the spring of knowledge. It is that the attainment of luminous truth that elevates and that cleanses. was Surah al marfua In the traditional tafasir, Surah al-Marfu'ah are, as we said, high couches. Now, the, the Sufi-esque tafsir has sort of a, a, it's a little bit of a sarcasm that they'll often include and if, that you need to know the literature well to catch that sarcasm. Um. And it has to do with Hadith. The Hadith reportedly says that when this was revealed, Muslims went to the Prophet, and said, but Prophet, if the couches are going to be surul marfu'ah, high couches, how are we going to sit on them? They're very high. And the Prophet reportedly says, well, in the year after, when you want to sit on them, the couch will sort of squish itself down so that you can climb up and then it will puff itself up again. So in Suvitu so and they know that these traditions are not very reliable. So, but then they they sort of include these traditions and say, unless you are going to be among those who want to ride the, the like uh, what would translate as the Seesaw couches, or the um, what is that? What do you call these things? Oh, okay. huh? in, 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 like, like, uh, like in in in, uh, in Magic Mountain. Oh yeah,
2: roller coaster. Like yeah,
1: like, like equivalent, like roller coaster couches. That uh, and of course what they what they're saying is, is that this is you know they 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 they're sort of zinging the traditional Tafassir without saying it um, right out, so but so they 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 read Surah Marfu'ah, um, and and I think and wa namarik So these three, because they, they, I think it's best to explain them all at once is that they say in the, whether on this earth or whether in the hereafter, the way you handle igashiya on this earth, there are always stages of elevation. The stages of elevation are intimately interconnected with the extent to which you have internalized as-sifat al-ilahiyya, the divine attributes. The more you have internalized as-sifat al the the... the the higher the attainment in dealing with Al-Ghashiyah. So, let's say, just hypothetically, let's say you have worked really hard on ten of the Sifat Al-Alahiyah, and you have mastered these ten. So, and let's say, arguably, just you know, for sake of argument, that you are Latif, you have become a very kind human being, you have become um, Wadood, you've become a a very uh, loving human being, Uh, Saboor, you become a very patient human being, Um, and so on. Well, that means the way you deal with al-Ghashiya, will be at a certain stage that is much higher than someone who has not attained any of the the attributes. But someone who has attained 20 of the attributes rather than 10, the way they deal with a Ghashiya will be even higher. But they see the same thing as taking place in the hereafter. In the hereafter, your ability, what elevates you, what brings you true pleasure, true happiness, is truth, and the truth is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But, the more you have attained, the more you have attained in the hereafter, of the divine attributes, the higher your ability to be elevated by the truth. So, Maratibus Sifat, Faina Likulisifa, Minipida, Tajaliha, Watawali, Anwariha, Wakona Halan, Ila Kamalit, Etosaf Mira. فإذا استوفى السالك حظه منها بحسب استعداده وبلغ غاية مبلغه حتى تم سيره فيها وصارت ملكا له كان مقامه منها نمرقة على تلك الأريكة التي هي موضع تلك الوصف مع ذات. So, You attain whatever you attain on this earth, and then you die, and then you're resurrected with what you've attained. But that's not the end of your journey. In the hereafter, you will continue to work to attain a higher and higher status. So some people in the hereafter will work very hard, but to do that, you need your free will. You see, that's why the issue of free will mattered a lot for the Sufis and mattered a lot for the rationalists but for very different reasons. The Sufis wanted to say that you will have the ability to continue working and to in fact rise to grow in attainment of the divine in the hereafter. You're not you, you. It depends on you. And they even say some people will attain whatever they want to attain, and you know, a hundred thousand years. Some people it will take them ten thousand years. Some people will take them whatever. So people will attain at different levels, and some people might not want to. I mean, they, they ultimately, they're, they're satisfied with whatever status they're in, and they, they, that's where they want to be and stop. Um. So the way that they understand wa namarik is as allusions so the Akwab for instance are allusions to Al Zawet that they're allusions to the uh, moral or ethical characteristics. Um, the Namarik, as I said, are levels of attainment, while the Zarabi Mabthusa. I write the language now. What Zharabi al-Makdutha is, I don't, I didn't write the language of exactly, the equivalent to al Zarabi but... Um, There's ethical course, There's a I don't remember exactly, but it is not not it is an, not just extended carpets as in traditional tefasir, but it is an allusion again to some type of moral um, level that or the, the leveling of morality. Um, okay so then this takes us to that point on Surah Al-Ghashiyah where Allah says reflect and this is the transition takes place at 17 أَفَلَا يَنظُرُونَ إِلَى ibili كَيْفَ خُلِخَتْ So, the traditional tafasir, again, this is fairly straightforward. Don't they look at how camels were created? And camels, of course, for Arabs, pre Islamic Arabs, it mattered a great deal. Camels were, you know, the, 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 the miracle of the desert. There is another meaning. To not a lot of Tafasir adopted that meaning, but it's plausible. ibel could also be clouds that carry that are heavy with water, that that are uh, uh, laden with precipitation. So. Allah could be saying look at the camels, how they've been created or look at the clouds of the the, the clouds that carry water in rain. Um and then after Al ibl is the Sama the heavens, how it's been raised and the Jibal mountains and how they've been constructed as compared to the flat earth uh, so th- this would be up to verse 20. Or alternatively, it could be to clouds, to the heavens, to the mountains, to the flat earth. So don't you reflect upon the nature and these senses. In Sufi Ask the Fasir, the, what is fascinating is that Al-Ibl could also mean any being without the intellect could be an Ibl. And so Sufi asked the Fasir, they've often read al Ibl Kayfa Khuligat as a reference to the raw material of a nafs, human consciousness, without the intellect and without the soul. So it's like saying, don't you look at, or don't you reflect upon consciousness itself. And then they say, remember in the Sufi tradition, any reference to sama' is always understood as a reference to the human spirit or human soul. So they understand that as how consciousness has been coupled with an active soul, the secret of which no one understands. As Jebel the construction is the, Jebel could also be the power source of anything. And from jibilla from the word jibillah or jabushe. And so they understand that most most often as kulub, as the hearts, or as or more or as common as the aqul, as the intellects. The hearts or intellects. And Al-Ard an they'll often read that metaphorically as referring to the body so we say that Allah is saying reflect upon consciousness the spirit that animates this consciousness and the intellects that are able to, differ, to to move mere sensation to actual meaning within the context of a body. Now, this reflection is for Allah to say, Fazakir ma anta illa wazakir lest alayim be musayter. To say, for Allah to tell the Prophet, Alissa to Slam, remind people. Because your role is to remind people, not to control people. couple of things. A traditional tafsir see this as talking to the Prophet. Most of them... That, so that Allah is telling the Prophet remind people. Your role is to remind people. You don't control people. And... Taf- more rational or rationally oriented or philosophically oriented tafsir as well as sufi tafsir they see this as directed to anyone that is performing the role that the prophet performed of advancing immoral costs. cause your job is to remind not to control. In traditional tafasir, they typically have a discussion that goes into, a lot of traditional tafasirs say that this was abrogated after the revelation of jihad. Now, of course, as al-Razi and many others say, the argument that this is abrogated by jihad is very myopic. Um, we, we'll get to this inshallah, but jihad was, or military conflict, was necessitated by a set of circumstances. Most specifically, when your enemy is ready to use force against you whenever your enemy pleases. And, and it, sometimes it becomes necessary to preemptively communicate to the, your enemy. And this is what empires do all the time, that using violence against you will be extremely costly. But that never changes the the role of a is is one thing, but that never changes the, the basic ethical rule that the only way of advancing morality is to teach morality. Coercion doesn't establish morality. And and in fact, if the Sufi astafasiers are correct, that people confront the truth of the darkness of the evil that they perpetuated, and I believe they are correct, and that. People attain levels of illumination which becomes their state of bliss in the hereafter. None of that is possible in an equation of coercion. Because in coercion, whatever darkness you suffer from, it's not your own. And whatever illumination you have, it's not your own. In coercion, the first thing you learn is hypocrisy and deceit and to pretend and to dissimulate. Nothing is real. You live in a world of shadows and smoke and mirrors. The only... Remember we said at the beginning that we realize in order for God, there is a God, but in order for God to be moral, you need accountability. But here's the thing, in order for accountability to be moral, you need volunteerism. Accountability cannot make moral sense if there is coercion. It is one thing, since we have a short surah, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for me to say this. It's one thing for me to say, you know, the majority this population, the majority of this population is Muslim. We want to create something that gives expression to our basic Muslim identity. So, you know, we're going to create a state that has basic core Muslim values. As long as Voluntarism is the ultimate philosophy. So in, we, we don't force people by claiming that we know that the divine what the divine will is. Whatever, whatever consensus we've achieved, it is our consensus as human beings, but it is not. We don't claim we speak for God. And the more... The, in order for that to be effective, it needs to be a minimalist consensus, meaning that it cannot take. The more you take away from the space available for human freedom, for people, then the more coercive the formula, and the more coercive, the far further away you div- you move from the divine ideal. So if you are trying to construct something Islamic, you better try to make sure that it is less coercive as possible. So it is as coercive as you might need to maintain a rule of law, or as coercive as you might need to maintain a basic Islamic identity. But you have to be careful because every time every time you are engaged in the paradigm of the coercive, you know you are taking away from the divine realm. Um, so when... مَا أَنْتَ إِلَّا مُذَكِّرِ لَسْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ just So you remind because you're nothing but, your role is to remind. You don't control them. I read this, this is a Meccan revelation, as a constitutional principle. Because if the Prophet ﷺ was not given license to control a people, then what human being has the right to control a people? I wish Muslims would just reflect on this. All these Muslims that seem to think authoritarianism is okay with Islam and despotism is okay with Islam and seem to think that, well, Islam, yeah, you know, they completely bought into the Orientalist myth of the you know, or, Oriental despotism and they think that despotism is the most natural thing for their Islam if if the prophet the prophet, prophet was not given permission to control a people then who dares say I have the right to control a people I mean it, it does does Someone like Muhammad bin Salman, does he control the Saudi people or doesn't he? Obviously he does. Someone like Sisi in Egypt, does he control the Egyptian people or doesn't he? If someone tells them, like recently someone just told him that you made a mistake about your negotiations with the Ethiopian government, he was promptly arrested. So anyone... It, it blows my mind that we don't see a problem with the Orientalist, with the, with the despotic paradigm, which is premised on the idea that a person or a group of people control a population. But if Allah tells the Prophet Aliisha of Salam, although the Prophet has, is, is aided with direct revelation. You don't have the right to control. So who dares claim that right to themselves? I, I, not of all the theologians of Jami Islam and, uh, uh, what's the name of the other, um, Madkhali Islam and, and Wahhabi Islam and Sufi Islam and all the the, the, the zif that's out there. No one responds to this point. No one addresses it. With, you, you look at how many Muslim countries live in despotism and you are puzzled by it. It hasn't been that the revealed book in the Bible it's it says that you have to obey your king like you obey God. But in, in the Quran, it is exactly the opposite. So how could it be that Muslims become the one who embody despotism? Anyone that claims to control a people is acting in direct contravention to what Allah said in the Quran and then they say Oh, Allah rasul the Minkum. it is it is that that doesn't answer this I mean we'll, we'll get inshallah to this this ayah but it it, it 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 has nothing to do with the way despots control the people take away their free will, deny them any ability to actually determine their own fate in life, including whether they want to be Muslim or not. Including that. Because if they don't want to be Muslim, who are you to, to force them to be Muslim? Okay. And then, as to those وكفر, as to those that turn away so you have a, an obligation to remind but you, as to those who turn away from you in other words, don't want to listen you don't even have an obligation to remind them So, the way that this is translated uh, over them, but whoever turns away and disbelieves, God will punish them with the greatest punishment. The original Arabic as to those who turn away turn away means that you don't have an obligation to pursue them to communicate the message to them if they turn away. They turn away, they turn away. But their affairs, their fate is left up to God. It is God that punishes them. Because ultimately they will return to us an accountability is left up to us, meaning to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. I think that's all of Surah al Um We should pray us. I have to pray us. Uh, I don't think I'll do Surah Al-Ala. Uh, surah al is enough for today.
0: Okay, Um So actually, so let let me start first. Um, Alhamdulillah, thank you for an amazing surah. Um, but as you were just saying, <laughs> um, let's you we're gonna add your piece to. To yeah. the To the take. And also I assume that the zikr is the entire surah since it's so small or short, I mean. Okay.
1: Bismillah rahman rahim Yeah, I, uh, I think just the, the, the pain has uh, made me forget. It. The, um, my my own take on, on surah al-Rashiyah uh, what i what i find really interesting is that in al um, uh, you know al is understood as i said as yawm al-qiyamah al is understood uh, as uh, uh, the, something that is overwhelming or whatever is very overwhelming but there seems to be a third meaning that is rather obvious, um, and it's surprising that it's not something you encounter in tafsir, and that Russia is anything that comes from um, Russia. Is she. It's the same word that or the word gish comes from. "Rish" means deception, oh. um, and Russia is. Yeah, I agree that it is probably an illusion to the to the hereafter, but I also agree that the in all these short or there is a dual meaning an illusion to the hereafter but also an illusion to something in the here now and al-ghashiya is is any thing that um, causes a a deception a that is misleading that is not just misleading but something that is false and it fundamentally a lie, and those who said that al-Ghashiya re- refers to, to hayat al-dunya, and we know that dunya means the lowly life or the, law you know the the, the, the base life, um, and I think that they, what what they were sensing from that is that, but I understand that attack hadith al-Ghashiya is. Have you reflected upon that that deceives human beings, that draws human beings to live into a life of falsehood and that whatever, whether you are lying to yourself or whether something like for instance, a career that makes you think, makes you fundamentally um, uh, corrupt your values, or I understand the Russia, for instance, if, if there is a, a career that makes, uh, well, as often careers that are very uh, lucrative, makes people rebel against their family um, they become dissatisfied with their family life now now I'm earning money and I'm making money and I'm living with with higher class people and who you know you, you, you people are not my 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 you know you're lower than me now and you know and then you become very fed up with your family and you become very dissatisfied with your family and I see that as hadith al-ghashiyah and that's why Allah calls it hadith it is the news or the the, 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 the discourse upon, upon falsehood um, and that when it does when you allow yourself to be deceived in that fashion when you allow yourself to lose who you are, whether, again, it is a form of self-deception or because of the deception that comes from you externally, um, you become amila, um, nasiba, that you, you're you you're very busy pursuing whatever you pursue in this life of deception, but your actions are all for vain, nothing. There were, there, it's literally that. I'm in on You are uh, very busy. You are pursuing whatever you're pursuing. You think you're achieving things, but you're not achieving anything other than bringing a literal hellfire upon yourself. The, and the hellfire is the hellfire that, of the consequences in the hereafter, sure. Because as I said before, that you know if I am if I come and I and I light the fire and someone comes tells me you know you're lighting this fire it's gonna burn you and I say okay well what is it gonna burn me and then they say well it's gonna burn you 10 seconds from now so in our earthly life we understand this as oh, well, you're going to burn yourself with this fire that you've lit. And I, because it's going to burn me in 10 seconds from now, I might take heed and I might actually not light the fire. But someone comes and says, it's going to burn you an hour from now. Well, okay, most rational people would still not light the fire. Well, someone comes and says, it's going to burn you a week from now. It's going to burn you a month from now. It's going to burn you a year from now. It's going to burn you 60 years from now. That, that it's all a matter of timing. Because we're human beings, we think that it's going to burn you 60 years from now is, but from the, from the perspective of aqidah, from the perspective of iman, it's going to burn you 60 years from now. It's not a question of whether it's going to burn you. It is going to burn you 60 years from now. So it is as certain as it's going to burn you a second from now. It's going to burn you 10 seconds from now. That's one. But two, for me as a human being, the only reason I start getting doubts about whether it's going to burn me is because of the way I experience time as a human being. But if I experience time outside the human realm, in other words, where time doesn't matter, 60 years from now would be the same as a second from now. It is all a matter of perception. It's not a matter of change in reality. And that's the part that when Allah says, Tasla naran any deception that is going to degrade you, Yawma that's going to deprecate you, will bring hellfire upon you, whether it is a second from now or 60 years from now or 100 years from now, it doesn't matter. It's just a matter of perception. تُسْقَى in عَيْنِ الْآنِيَةِ لَيْسَى min تَعَامُوا مُنْ ضَرِيَةِ تُسْقَى مِنْ عَيْنِ الْآنِيَةِ is literally a, 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 you will drink from what you've sowed. If it, it's understood it humanically, it is not because if you boiling water is boiling water, you can't boil water more than it's boiled. You know, you can't heat water more than its most hot level because then it turns into gas. So, it doesn't make sense to say that oh Allah is going to heat up the water and then you're going to drink it. But means, you will drink from the inevitability of the water that you've set in motion. You will eat the bitterness of the food that you deserve that will not lead you anywhere. You will think you're eating Yeah, because you're consuming. But from a point of view of aqidah, your consumption is actually precisely counterproductive. Because your consumption is not for hunger. You're not consuming what you consume in in a fog of deception because you're a hungry person. You're consuming for fun. لَا وَلَا Meaning that it will, well, it's not, what well, you're consuming because of just to have fun. Well, guess what? This consumption will, will, in fact, help avail you nothing. All that consumption you've done on earth comes in an instant. And you discover that it's all actually created a huge problem for you. And I think that in Ghashia, if you reflect on the, the expression of Ghashia is, is whatever deceives us, whatever takes us into the fogs of self-deception that many, many years ago I talked about before. That And truly fortunate are those that confront the, can could confront their fogs And not be be deceived by them. That's my main. That's my main addition to to uh, Surah Al-Ghashiyah. Is and oh, and and there is one other thing that I, I, Subhanallah, the Prophet ﷺ used to read Surah al ala Sabahsmarbik alla and Surah al-Ghashyah in the Aid. And he reportedly would also read um in w he would pray in the Shafa and Witr. He would read Sabah Basmar Rabbiq Ala and Surah Al-Gasha in the and then in Witr he would read Qulwa wahad an in Ma'a Um and it is the, the what is striking for me is that Surat al-Ghashiyah was um it, it reminded the early Muslims of precisely what what I'm saying is that it rem- it would consistently remind them of the need to resist being attracted by deceptive things, by vain things. Um, but uh, more on that, especially the the, the relationship of the Prophet ﷺ to uh, Surah Al A'la and Al Ghashiyah, inshallah, when we get, when we get to Surah Al A'la. Um, since it was revealed first, Surah Al Sabah ala was revealed in the early Meccan period, and Al Ghashiyah was in the middle Meccan period. Um, but interestingly, uh, among the first surah, to be taught for, to people in Medina upon the hijrah of the Muslims to Medina was Surat Al-A'la and Al-Ghashiyah, which is very interesting. OK. Uh,
0: for those who, who are interested, um, what the sheikh was talking about is a lecture that you can find on our SoundCloud channel called The Fog of Self-Deception. Um, it's a really extremely valuable lecture. And um, so I would really highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't listened to it. Um, This was from, I believe, the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken. It was part of a a halakha that you gave, I think was it part of Shalali Allah or? um, Yeah, it was around that time. Okay, yeah, so it was the early 2000s. But anyway, that one and also building a partnership with God, Um, those are extremely, extremely valuable for, Confronting yourself and your fog like this whole idea of of fog and and not seeing truth and just kind of the deceptions that you that you live with um, And I think so much of like um, breaking through that and finding yourself and finding your truth I mean that those those two lectures were really really powerful. So um, anyway um, Just let me this was like kind of like throwing in like the most important part you know, in the Q&A, so alhamdulillah, um, I had forgotten that was a word that I associated with that, those lectures, um, and we didn't talk about fog in the first part of the, the halakha. Yeah. Um, so let me just go around again. Did anybody have any questions here, now that we have that kind of new edition? Um, okay, so, all right, so let's then start with the in- interactive group. Um, This is from Rizwan. In reference to the discussion on the correlation between internalizing divine attributes and responding to Rashia in this world and elevating in heaven or in the hereafter, two questions. One, is one able to internalize a divine attribute in this world to the extent where they absolutely embody that attribute without any tension of its counter-attribute, for example, to be truly grateful and not at all experience inclinations of ingratitude? And second, if one is of the belief that in heaven God takes away the ability to deceive the self from the self and the individual exists in an eternally blissful state, how can one elevate? Elevation presupposes that there are, that are, there are gradations to attributes. However, it does not seem, for example, if one was honest in the eyes of God, that they could become more honest. For there to be gradations, there would have to be some ele- element of negative attributes that lessens one state on the scale of gradations.
1: Yeah, um, these are good questions. The um, um, I'm blanking what okay, what's first the
0: first is is it able to is is one able to internalize a divine attribute? oh oh yeah okay so the,
1: uh, yeah the the in, the issue of the internalization on uh, in, on in this earth uh, to perfection is it possible it's possible but it's rare um, in, in, there are of course divine uh, there are divine attributes that and um, uh, that, I mean, it is, it is, I don't want to say easier, but it is possible, for instance, to to become the embodiment of merciful, mercifulness. Uh, and, but I think much, but, but, to become the embodiment of truthfulness and not meet some tension or some resistance or some temptation, that, that's rare. Um, but anyway, it, part of the whole, uh, uh, the, the whole discipline of akhlaq is that to talk about the attainment of divine attributes in an order and usually, the way that the especially the Sufis would would work on it is that they would depending on the, the the school of Sufism they followed, they would have a certain order within within their school of thought that they believed would be more conducive to the ability so they would start with normally normally but with some you know because they're, they're, it's very hard to generalize when it comes to all the Sufi tariqas, But normally, they would start with attributes that would be more attainable and work towards attributes that are more difficult to attain without resistance. And, um, you know, within Sufi tariqas. The, the the they believe that those who actually attained certain levels would become become a Qutb. Um, and they believe that the Qutb would in fact reach that point where they would not have in the in most of the theological orientations that were not necessarily wedded to a Sufi Tariqah uh, they did not believe that perfection was possible. So, um, any attribute that you worked on, um, it was a matter of degree, and you had to keep working on it so you don't slip. And, And in fact, like in the usulis, among the usulis, it was always, we believed that When you think you've attained an attribute to perfection, that's actually when you are at the the highest risk of losing it. So they would warn you all the time um, that um, when you start getting comfortable with the belief, like you know, you you're not tempted by something anymore. Um, they would always warn you that this is the time that you should be most worried um, because you, you, you will slip. And um, a lot of the usulis who are not Sufis, uh, that was the, the, the main skepticism they had was towards a lot of the Sufi tariqas, is that they were always skeptical of claims of attainment. Um, as to the hereafter, what is what it, 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 it's all premised on the nearness to the epitome of beauty and the epitome of truth and the epitome of luminosity. So it is how close are you to the divine? Uh, and what you are, comp- what you are trying to attain in the hereafter, is a closer status to the divine. Um, so it is not that um, it, it is. It is by observing those you you are uh, you are very aware of everything that prevents you from being closer to the beauty of the divine and and some people depending on their level of of more, their motivation, their awareness, their whatever. Some people will will, will be satisfied with whatever status they're in and um, not strive to be closer. So while others will be driven to ever be closer, regardless of how long it takes or... What is involved. And the way that you become closer to the divine is by working on the sifat. But
0: the
1: sifat are the attributes of divinity. But what's interesting is that in earthly life, the way that you work on attributes is by by practice. by 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 service of of human beings and creation, so the way that you are compassionate is to perform deeds. When it comes to the hereafter, that's really one of the most. Um, that's where you get the most abstractions in thought, because and the and the abstractions get a bit challenging because they 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 don't believe that it is through service anymore that you attain the characteristics of the divine, but through reflection and enlightenment and dhikr, um, which sometimes gets to sound very philosophical. So if you look up like a tafsir like Isharat al most people will read the Isharat al and not understand anything it says. And the reason they don't is because it is it, it 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 so much of the language is a specialized language in the realm of these abstractions. Um You know, I, I'm not sure how to, because I don't have a frame of reference. Um, it, I can completely understand that if I, you know, come in the hereafter, and if I'm fortunate enough to be among the blessed, but then I discover that there are ten veils that separate me from the divine. You know, my heart tells me I will want to wither away these veils to get as closer to the divine as possible. But where it gets hard for me to grasp is that when I'm said, well, you don't wither away these veils through service, which I understand because in the year after, what service? But then say through comprehension and understanding. Um, You know, sometimes you know I get a glimpse of what is being talked about when I'm reading Ibn Arabi because I I see the layers of understanding that he demands. Um, but I I hope it's not as as difficult as you know how good you become in 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 something as abstract like pure mathematics because uh, well, that seems to be very difficult. Um, I hope it's something like zikr, maybe, or, you know... Uh, or or cleansing away whatever sins um, that Allah might have forgiven. Allahu alam you know, we just don't know. But I accept the idea that whatever Whatever barriers between exist between me and closeness to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, I will want to wither away. Uh, but I also trust that the rules of the game will be clear to me in the hereafter, uh, even if I can't figure them out now.
2: Three. <clears throat> Um, first of all, thank you so much because this um, halakha was was among the most profound of them. Um, and, I, and I have a question, but you know, I, I wanted to just make a comment that you know having I think the experience of having a family member, that is ill. I, I was talking about this with multiple people throughout the day and it's just, it's coincidental. Um, what what for, for me personally was a mm-hmm. and But it within it has such immense potential to be a blessing because it forced me to realize that it shatters your delusions about what life is supposed to be especially in in our society that is very attached to uh, that, that life is supposed to guarantee comfort it's supposed to guarantee security that that's somehow a normal thing to expect and when something like that comes especially I think early on in a, in a family story or before old age, um, it really shatters that and that, you know, becomes a blessing and whenever, you know, I, I think it's, it's the reason why I'm making this comment is because I think it's important for especially those who might not be as familiar with the Suli Institute's work to also realize that when we're talking about you in pain it's not so much about you being in pain and we're all very grateful for it but it's also an example of Mm. how I I feel like it's an example for me of how I'm supposed to my my relation to life and my relation to difficulties with life Because pain is a very extreme example of this. But even in lesser degrees, annoyances with people, drama with people, loss of job, loss of relationship, all of these things, I think there's a tendency to look at it and just see the surface of it. But then, and getting engrossed in the emotions and engrossed in the narrative around it, um, the lesson is lost and the opportunity is is lost to realize how it, it's actually an opportunity to build a relationship with Allah and so it's not about the pain, it's not about the difficulty it's not about the drama, It's it's about the fact that the response to it is something that can, can catapult you to a Allah because I think it's a very it's a very Christianized idea that suffering for the sake of suffering is is, is somehow divine but I feel like th- there's a meaning in suffering and there's a purpose mm. to suffering and that's the difference between a westernized, Christianized, Romanized um, view of suffering and religion and an Islamic view of, of suffering and its purpose in, in our lives um, and it's it's amazing because I so I mean my question you know I, I'm always my, my personal fascination and my personal desire for, for engaging with your thought and engaging with these halakas is that I want to understand and I want to help myself and to help other people transform individually. And I feel like the biggest barrier that we have is these deceptions and, and these fogs. Because we're we're going against the grain in that we have a very long history of trying to fit Islam within the framework of our society and not not investigate our long-held beliefs You know whether that be about jobs whether that be about romantic partners whether that be about our social groups you know we compartmentalize Islam into a certain area. And when we were during this halakha, I kept reflecting, especially once you gave your interpretation, it kind of brought it around to me. And that's why I was able to develop this question. Is there where do we draw the line between protecting ourselves and ensuring our rights? And doing the beautifully good thing because it seems like I think for a lot of people there's kind of this idea which is usually attached to Sufism that you completely abandon yourself that you turn yourself like into a punching bag of sorts but at the same time I feel like the thing that reinforces my rashia is this idea of justified resentments is this idea of protecting myself is this idea that I have a right to act a certain way. I have a right to be upset. I have a right to have certain standards around materialism, about the the people that I choose in my life or the partners, whether they're friends or romantic or or professional. Um, In today's day and age, within the framework of our society and the challenges that we have, how do we draw that line? in light of what the surah is, is asking us to do.
1: Uh,
0: and can you paraphrase that, drawing the line between?
1: Drawing the, the line between protect, protecting the self and uh, doing the beautiful thing. Um, um, I mean, of course, what what grief is, is uh, alluding to is that if you is that this often entails erasure in uh, in many ways because um, a lot of people do what's wrong not because they think it's wrong and i'm going to do it but because they think they have a justified sense of outrage um you know i i am i'm just defending i mean and and this is subhanallah i mean uh, after all you know look at how how much evil Israel has done against Palestinians, and Israel, and I'm sure that a lot of Israelis believe that they're just defending themselves, but they commit horrible crimes in the names of self-defense, and, uh, or what the U.S. did in Iraq, or what the U.S. Did in, uh, continues to do in Afghanistan, and continues to do in Iraq, actually. You know, the, the claim of self-defense is one of the, the, the biggest slippery slopes. But you can't ever say that self-defense is wrong because self-defense is right. But then, but, but the claim of self-defense will often act as a license for a lot of wrong. And so the question is, it, not at a of course, not at the country level, but at an individual level, effectively, because individuals do what countries do. Individuals commit a lot of things that are wrong in the name of self-defense. You know, righteous outrage. Um, and if you tell them, well, to, you know, you. Uh, 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 you can't respond to a wrong with a wrong. That in itself becomes a slippery slope because um, it's not always clear to them what's wrong. Um, if it involves being upset for this, uh, different reasons that should pointed out, whether relationships or um, you know whatever things that people. Um, And yeah, it's, it, it, I don't think that Sufism require. I mean, I think it is. It, it is uh, um, cheapened forms of or cheated forms of true Sufism that tells people to be punching bags. That's, that's not what Sufism teaches either. Uh, to be a Sufi doesn't mean that you, you go around saying, you know, uh, I, but it it, it is, sometimes a, a Sufi will allow the self, will reject self-defense as a form of discipline while having a clear view of what the self is. Um, so there's a, it, there's a big difference between, you know, not defending yourself because you don't think your yourself is worth defending and uh, not defending yourself because you make the conscious decision that I am disciplining myself to avoid certain mistakes, and so I am preferring that I take harm rather than inflict it or rather than run the possibility of inflicting it as a form of self discipline. And I don't think, I, I think that um, the Prophet. When tells us, you know, make seventy excuses or or seventy three excuses or um, uh, the the point is not obviously is not to uh, rubber stamp wrongful conduct, but the point is to attain an introspective position before jumping to this notion of self, of righteous outrage. That righteous, or the the claim of righteous outrage, the fact of the matter is that so much outrage blinds your eyesight and prevents you from seeing what's right or what's wrong. And so much outrage um, pushes you into adopting positions that are fundamentally inconsistent with the golden rule of treating other people like you would like to be treated. So in other words, we are often outraged by things where if you reverse the tables and you, you 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 it happens to us and we would be upset if people were outraged at us you know you so for example a silly example but it's it's real you know i i've known i've often observed like how people will react to being made to wait um when you know, if they make others wait, they'll often think that, well, you know, I have special circumstances and people should understand the special circumstances. But if they're made to wait, they're often very quick to get me outraged and say, you know, what special circumstances? Um, and I think that the the... Um, that's, that's the biggest risk about outreach, is that it, it is, it is not, it is not, um, you don't do rational thinking when you are outraged. And I'm not even talking about, I'm not talking about blind outrage. I'm talking about even being annoyed or irritated. Whenever you are annoyed or irritated or uh, you you what is responding is your nervous system, and and that nervous system is there are very few people or it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of training to. Um, Get your nervous system to basically abide by your by a set of pre-worked-out principles that are carefully thought out and are morally vetted and ethically scrutinized. Um, a lot of people that claim to have uh, principles or ethics that guide their emotions, well, they don't. I mean, and they they just don't. Um, And if you observe people long enough, you find the amount of contradictions and inconsistencies inconsistencies they fall in um, is the biggest proof of that. That they'll, they'll treat others in the same way that they claimed that you know i'm I'm outraged because i have principles and this is against my principles and and then they'll give them enough time um the, once you change their positions uh and you discover you see that clearly it's it's emotions that are dressed up in the form of principles So. Especially if you are in the in the process of growth, and and you know, um, unless you've you've done the type of training that where, where you've gone through, um, you know the the. the but if you've gone through rigorous training, you also have, a, you also know that the the biggest thing is never to be, never to accept. Uh, it, it's to it's to be your 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 own harshest judge. That you know your conscience is always after you. Um, that's the nature of training. But anyway, is that to always understand that. Whatever comes out of, ask yourself. But you have to. You, know, you have to. No, no one will get a perfect scoring uh, uh, batting average from the beginning. But always ask yourself. You know, is is my nervous system excited? And is my nervous system is what is is what I'm saying to myself is right or wrong? Is it a product of the nervous system or a, an, a, a, an intellectual analytical process of thinking about right and wrong? If it's a nervous system, then wait until you calm down. Um, it might take weeks, it might take months, it might take years, but don't judge as long as it is the nervous system, because the nervous system is a um, it is principles, ethical principles, virtue, requires the contemplation and the deep introspection that comes from ibadah, that comes from zikr, that comes from philosophical reflection. Um, and it's never aided by an excited nervous system. So I know that this is hard but the more you the, the more you persist in demanding in in, in 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 you know catching yourself the better you get at it and the more you grow um, and sooner or later you you learn, you know, the thing that it, nothing excites the nervous system like pain. Like when you are in pain, your nervous system has the patience of of uh, of an ill child or an ill baby. Your nervous system, you know, can't stand anything. When when you're in pain, it it, it just you know, very active. Um, but if it's possible to train your nervous system to butt out of the of the adjudicative, adjudicative process, even when you are in pain, then anything is possible. Um, you just work on it. You know that's the biggest advice I give people is that uh, if you're if you're just as a, 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 if you're annoyed, if you're irritated, if you're outraged, if you're offended, ask you know if if you can if you can able to confront yourself and say it's my nervous system, then throw it out until you calm down and then revisit it.
0: Alhamdulillah. With that, we're out of time. I think it's a good place to stop. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us, especially you guys who joined us for Eid. <laughs> really appreciate you being with us. It's great to see you, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the evening. Eid. Eid May, Mubarak. Eid Mubarak. May Allah bless you for investing your, your vacation time in knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so I look forward to seeing you on Saturday, inshallah. Have a wonderful rest of the week. As-salamu alaykum. Alaykum, alaykum. Thank you.